When I first started this podcast, I had no clue what I was doing, and it showed. This podcast was terrible in the beginning, so much so that when people tell me today that they listen to early episodes, I cringe because it was just that bad. But along the way, of course, I figured things out and started growing as I was going. But I wish I knew these things in the beginning. I could have saved so much time, money, and just sheer embarrassment. Now I'm solving for all of the unknown variables of podcasting for you with my brand new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster. Oh, and by the way, it's completely free. In the course, I give away every single one of my secrets from marketing to building a business around your podcast and monetizing your podcast without ads. I put a ton of effort into this course over the past few months, and it is extremely professional. And this is something that people around me said I should be selling for 400 bucks, but I said, no, I am giving this away for free. I couldn't think of something better to share with you. So for free access to my new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster, you can go to jordanparis.com forward slash course. That's jordanparis.com forward slash course for free access to my brand new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster. I look forward to seeing you in the course. Let's build a business around your podcast. Today on Growth Mindset University. The real story of Mozart is he was three. He had a helicopter dad. His helicopter dad started making him practice the piano when he was three, practicing three hours, seven days a week. You're listening to Growth Mindset University, educating tomorrow's leaders with lessons from today's entrepreneurial elite. It's a progressive new age of business we find ourselves in, and we'll help you find the success you seek by listening to today's industry professionals and thought leaders teach us the lessons we should have learned in school but didn't. Now, please welcome your host, Jordan Paris. I am extremely grateful that you are here with me today on Growth Mindset University. We have interviews with the best of the best. New York Times bestselling authors, billionaires, the like, the most successful people in the world, people like Mark Manson, Naveen Jain, James Altucher, so many more. And I don't want you to miss these interviews. So go ahead and subscribe to this podcast, Growth Mindset University, wherever you are listening right now. One of my favorite things is when you reach out to our guests that we have on the show. So for example, if you enjoy today's guest, please reach out to them. Tell them that you enjoyed today's episode. Send them that token of gratitude. Like, look, I heard John Jordan's show and it was so good. This really impacted me. If you do this with every guest, you're going to start building a world-class network in record time. This is how I built my network. So this is just another way I'm looking to give back to you here. Just give you this little tip. So reach out to our guest today. And now without further ado, please enjoy the show. My guest today is Alan Gannett. Alan was the founder and CEO of TrackMaven a marketing analytics platform whose clients included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth Ave, Home Depot, Aetna, Honda, and GE. In 2018, it merged with Skyward, the leading content marketing platform where he now serves as chief strategy officer. He has been on the 30 under 30 lists for both Inc. and Forbes. He is a contributor for fastcompany.com and his book, The Creative Curve, came out in June of 2018. 
The book has been featured on CNBC, Forbes, numerous top podcasts, and now Growth Mindset University, <laughs> and has been translated into seven other languages. And most interestingly, he was once a very pitiful runner-up on Wheel of Fortune. You can find Alan at Alan on Twitter and Instagram, literally just at Alan. He owns his name uh, as his tag on Twitter and Instagram. And then Alan.xyz is his website. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Uh, instead of I couldn't get Alan.com. I've tried for a very long time. And, yeah. Uh, so the bane of my existence. But well, you're telling we- all my secrets. Wheel of Fortune. Like this is. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask about that in a second. But like, how how'd you even get at Alan on Twitter and Instagram? Uh, it's good to work in the social media analytics industry for eight years. Oh, uh, you got you got a, you got the inside connects. It, Someone was probably sitting on that name. It's also just Alan's like a rare, like it's not a very common name in the U.S. What? Alan is like a usually a last name or like a very old person's name. There's not a lot of young Alans, so luckily the competition is not fierce. <laughs> yeah. So what's the deal with Wheel of Fortune, dude? What happened? Oh my god, that was ten years ago. Um, uh, uh, I did so bad. I got, I won $3,000 and a trip and I didn't take the trip cause I had to pay taxes on it. And so I forfeited mm-hmm. it and the woman who won, won $60,000. And so, you know, not my best. Interesting. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of like, uh, you know, Alex Benayan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he went on wheel of fortune at that, at that age too. I think it was wheel of fortune. He was on the prices, right? Uh, I know this because multiple people have brought this up. And they're like, oh, that's like that. There's that other guy who's. Yeah, it's a similar story, except he he freaking crushed it. He won, but uh, well, way to just you know crush my <laughs> dreams. <laughs> so so Alan, your book. That's what we're here to talk about today: the the creative curve, and it's such a great fit for Growth Mindset University because you're saying that creativity, even if you're not born with it, it's something that you can develop. Is that true? A hundred percent, and. One of the things that's sort of wild is that I remember when I started started working on the book, I sort of had this perspective of, okay, like it's probably something you get better at. But the thing I was surprised is when you actually look at the research around creativity and a lot of the academic work around talent development, there's actually a lot of consensus that the idea of sort of natural born talent is at best dramatically overstated and at worst a complete myth. And so one of the things that got me really going is actually there's all these fascinating studies around how the idea of genius and creativity being intertwined is sort of faulty. And actually what you find is that IQ doesn't really have that much to do with creativity. The things that have a lot to do with creativity are all sort of nurture-oriented things and conditioned things. And as a result, they mean they're also things you can change. And what are, so first, let's take a step back. Why did you even decide to go on this adventure of starting to write the book? So um, I ran for a long time this company called TrackMaven, which um, we help marketers figure out what are the patterns in their data, right? What are the stories? What are the things that are working? What's not working? What themes are working? And I've been really fascinated with this idea of that and things that are sort of organic, whether that be marketing or creativity or a lot of other things, there tends to be a lot more patterns than people sort of realize. And I had grown up, um, long story why, but I had grown up with sort of a view of creativity as something that you learn, you study, and you pattern all this stuff. And um, I actually went to a public school that had a creativity class growing up, which is pretty cool. And um, the thing that I thought was sort of wild is as I was working in marketing and as I was talking to these marketers, 
you know, they would say things like, I'm not that creative or that's not me or I'm not that person. And I just got kind of frustrated, right? I get really frustrated when I see people not living up to their potential. This is an example where really smart people who have a lot of raw ability and maybe haven't learned how to unlock that ability yet, but they sort of talk themselves into a position of not actually trying. And I think what's really surprising to people is, you know, you talk about obviously the growth mindset is one of the biggest hindrances to growth mindset for people is this idea that there are certain people who are great, right? The Steve Jobs, the John Lennon's, the blah, blah, blahs of the world. And I go into this a lot in the book, but they look at these stories and they don't actually understand that the stories they think they know are the sort of like marketing and PR version of the story. Right? We think about Steve Jobs, we often forget about Steve Wozniak and all the early employees at Apple. Apple had multiple employees like very, very, very early on. And so as a result, we think, oh, well, if I'm not this fictionalized version of Steve Jobs or everything's coming out of my head and I'm holding up this entire company on my shoulders, then I shouldn't even try. Right? I wasn't born for it. And this is the sort of the well, the misnomer around like, you know, identify your passion and that kind of stuff where it sort of assumes that we're like born with like, you know, we're good at certain things and everything else we suck at. And that's just not the reality when you look at the science. And so mm. one of the things I think when it comes to growth mindset is for people's realizing that a lot of these stories and a lot of these narratives they've heard are just faulty. So what's the research and science that, that does prove creativity is something that can be learned and improved? Oh my God, there's so much. Tell um, me, man. So Tell me I have, you know, 40 pages in the book about it. Of course. But I'll give you a, like a couple examples that I think are interesting. Uh, by the a- way, by the way, I will, the, the creative curve, you can get that on Amazon. Yes. Get that creative curve, the creative curve. If you're listening right now, get the creative curve. Love this guy, Jordan. Yes. Oof. Got a plug right what in the beginning. Smart guy. Oof. And um, so uh, there's a couple of interesting studies about this. I mean, a few of the ones I like a lot are there's a lot of work done around what's called threshold theory, which is this um, this finding that when you test IQ and you test creative potential, what you find is that once you get to about an average IQ, you actually find the relationship between creative potential and IQ disappears. So you can have IQ, any IQ over 100 has roughly the same creative potential. And an IQ of 100 is the, a 50 percentile. So half the world's smarter than you, half the world's less smart. And that means that basically probably like anyone listening to your show, not only do they not have similar amounts of creative potential, they actually have the same creative potential. And that's wild because if half the population has the same creative potential, that means someone with an IQ of 110 or 165, they actually don't have, um, they actually both have the opportunity to do a lot of amazing things. And so the question that's really interesting then, which we can talk about is like, why is there such a big gap between creative potential and creative achievement? And that's really interesting to me. So that's one sort of field that's sort of fascinating. The other field well, that I question, think Question, if if, so if my IQ, if I'm understanding this correctly, if my IQ is like 85, which I sometimes feel like it is, does that mean I have a little bit less creative potential? It does. But then what's okay. interesting is when you actually look at the relationship between IQ and achievement, even there you find a whole bunch of fascinating stuff. So like there's even not that much of a relationship there. Like there's this famous study that was done in the early 1900s by the guy Lewis Terman who invented the American version of the IQ test. And he took thousands and thousands of public school-aged children in California and he tested their IQ, took the ones with genius-level IQs, 
and he started sending them a survey every five years for the rest of their lives. After he died, his protégés kept doing it. It became this famous, famous study. He called the kids his termites, which I thought was weird. But anyway, and so this famous longitudinal study where it's like, what would happen if you follow the lives of kid geniuses, right? And so you'd expect like, okay, these are all kids with like 150 plus IQ from California. You know, over 50 years of their lives, you expect lots of big things from them. None of the kids, none of the kids had a Nobel Prize. None of them had done some sort of household accomplishment. No one was a household name. In fact, two of the um, kids who were tested and who did become later Nobel laureates didn't actually make the genius cut. And so what you find when you look at this stuff over and over again is actually not about those things. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting around the science of this stuff is people tend to not understand, um, you speak about a growth mindset, I mean, neuroplasticity and the idea that people don't realize how our brain really functions. And so neuroplasticity is this concept that every day you're generating thousands and thousands of new brain cells. And what happens is that your brain is actually adaptive, much in the same way your muscles are, right? So if I you know, take a job where I have to start lifting buckets every day. Over time, my body will adapt and make my muscles bigger. We all sort of buy that and get that. And it's why yeah. we go to the gym. Simple. But for whatever reason, when it comes to our brain, from a biological perspective, we're like, oh, our brain is our brain, which is not true. Actually, there's all these amazing studies. Like the, the really famous one that was done a while ago was- Taxi they, cab. Taxi cab versus bus drivers, right? And yeah. so- Taxi cab drivers, the longer they're a taxi cab driver, the bigger the part of the hippocampus that's tied to navigational skills became versus bus drivers who drive the same route every day had no change the longer they were a bus driver. So what's really interesting about that, and then they also looked at it over time. And so there's all these findings there. It's like, it's not about, it's not saying that people with big hippocampuses became taxi drivers, that by driving a taxi cab, they got better at navigation. And this kind of makes sense to us when you think about it. Like, think about, like, when you play a video game, for example. Like, if you've done it for a long time, you get better and better at it. But the thing is that creativity is a biological function. It's not some magical, mystical thing. So as a result, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And so this is one of those things where, again, we misunderstand creativity, we misunderstand how much of it is adaptive, how much of it is learned, how much of it is conditioned, and we do that mostly to our own detriment. How do you apply, though, some of, uh, how do you apply creativity in your life, Alan, and, and your company? Oh, I mean, you know, a bunch of stuff. I mean, one is that, um, you know, so I've Obviously, writing a book has sort of ha about creativity, sort of a meta experience, right? Because during you're going through the book, you sort of find that you're living things out that you talk about. So, like one of the things I talk about in the book a lot. So, the back half of the book is I talk about four things you can do to enhance your creativity, and one of the ones I'm really fascinated by is consumption. So, you know, we think about creatives as doers, as they're very active, and we think about consumers as passive consuming. Blah blah blah. What's interesting though, is that actually the best creatives are actually very active consumers. So they tend to be very obsessive about consuming everything in their niche. And this is a really important part of the creative process because what it does is it actually gives our right hemisphere the ability to like put these ideas together and come up with new ideas and do the work it needs to do. Um, you know, the, the thing I like to say is that, you know, if you want to connect the dots, you have to have the dots to connect, right? Oh. So, you know, J.K. Rowling grew up in, 
this household where parents were always fighting to get away. She would go to her bedroom, close the door and just read books and books and books and books. You know, Paul McCartney grew up in a musical household surrounded by musical parents. He literally played in a cover band. And so, yeah, it's not surprising that, you know, they conceive of great ideas in those fields. And so what was interesting is as I was working on the book, I was reading these really like nerdy papers on creativity research. And then I was having these aha moments about these like wonky concepts in sort of the sociology and psychology ideas around creativity. And like, obviously, I wouldn't have those if I hadn't been reading all that content. There wouldn't have been anything for me to connect. And so it's a really practical example. When I say it, it sort of makes obvious sense. But for some reason, we're sort of shocked when we think of these creative geniuses having epiphanies, then we say, well, we don't have epiphanies about music. Well, yeah, of course you don't. Like you haven't ingested anything. There's nothing for your brain to subconsciously connect together. And so that's an example where I was, I was, as I was writing the book, I was enjoying the sort of like meta experience that was going on. What about having blank space, like having the time to even connect the dots? Like if you, if you have your head buried in your phone, wait for way too large a portion of the day, are you lowering, do you think you're lowering your ability to be creative and connect some dots? Totally. So um, the thing that's really interesting is, so you can sort of think about, um, you know, when you think about creativity, it's sort of cliche to talk about left brain, right brain, but it's actually really important. So the right brain is where we do sort of like any sort of processing that's a little more complicated. So connecting two concepts together, metaphors, wordplay, puns, creativity, that all happens in our right hemisphere. And our right hemisphere does that processing sort of right at or right below the sort of level of consciousness. So we're not actually aware that the right hemisphere is working on solving a problem. And it's only once it gets the answer does it sort of chirp up and say, hey, I got the answer. But the thing that's interesting is that you can think about your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere as sort of like a loud lab partner in college and a quiet lab partner. So your left hemisphere is like, okay, we're going to do this and then this and then this. And look, we solved the problem. Good job, team. Right. And your right hemisphere is like the quiet, dorky one, aka, you know, me misunderstood. And you're like, okay, I'm going to work on the problem. And, like, and look, we got the answer. And if the loud lab part, if your left hemisphere is too loud, if it's too activated, you can't hear your right hemisphere. And so this is why you experience aha moments in the shower, on your commute, when you're on a run, when you're meditating. These are all moments when your left hemisphere is suppressed. You can actually hear, so to speak, your right hemisphere activations. It's also why we talk about like drugs and alcohol being tied to creativity. Like these are all things that suppress your left hemisphere, but like you don't have to do drugs. You can literally go on a walk. And so what you find <laughs> is that one of the most important things when it comes to creativity is silence. Because like that's so important to being able to hear what's going on in your brain. And so like Steve Jobs famously would go on these long walks through his neighborhood. Mark Zuckerberg has copied that. Bill Gates spends a week, a year in a cabin by himself. Even Sarah Blakely, I was hearing an interview with her and she has time every day, like where she drives in her car, no music, nothing. Like she calls it thinking time. 100%. 100%. And it's so important. Like for me, when I go to the gym or I go on a run, no music. Because for me, that is that time. And so what I tell people is you don't need to literally meditate, but you need to find something meditative. And that can literally be walking your dog, right? But find that thing for you that you enjoy 
that sparks ideas and that you can build into your schedule on a daily, weekly basis and really make part of it. Because if you don't have that time, you won't have ideas. And to your point before, it's like we're now running around with our phones and social media and our pings and our all these notifications. It's hard. And you don't actually give yourself the time to experience the creativity that you could. Yeah, you got to give yourself a chance. There's certainly wisdom in silence. And I don't think people should be afraid to be alone and have some silence sometimes. You know, you don't have to have the speaker blaring all day, every day. Like in, you know, when, when, when nothing's going on in your house, you don't got to play music to real loud. Like you can have thinking time and it's a very healthy thing. And you, who knows what could come from that? Totally. So how do we get better at, uh, how do we, uh, hmm, how do we, tap into this potential of our creativity? Like, what are some things like, you know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to become a better writer, what would I do? So there's a couple of things we already talked about. Like one, obviously being consumption, you should read a lot. Two, being yes. moments for silence. But one of the ones that I really like and I think is very actionable is one of the trends I found among create- creatives. So we think about creatives as being sort of very original, very novel, But actually, that's not true. Like, if you actually think about the best creatives of our time, they're actually not focused on radical novelty. What they're focused on is taking a familiar idea and adding a novel twist to it. And so, you know, Star Wars is a Western in space. Harry Potter is the most straightforward orphan story of all time, but they're wizards. Like, these Shakespearean dramas or tragedies, blah, 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 blah. And so what you find when you actually study creativity is that the best ideas are actually quite a bit more incremental than you'd expect. And so the result is that imitation is actually a huge part of a successful creative process. You see this in music a lot. But successful creatives learn what are those familiar structures? What are those frameworks, right? So I talk about in the book Kurt Vonnegut for his master's thesis took um, great American novels and he mapped out on a chart um, of negative to positive emotion. He mapped out their story arcs and he found that there was these four recurring story arcs that appeared over and over again in these successful novels. And so for him, that was a really big finding around his job is not to reinvent what sort of drama the reader wants. Right. His job is to tell that in an interesting way. Right. We love love stories and love stories have key elements. And so when we think about like a genre, for example, or any of these things, we actually tend to like things that are not that radical. And so the result is as a creative, you should spend your time learning and imitating the structure of great successful work. And it's not about, it's not plagiarizing, not copying the actual content. It's about learning the structure. I think you know, I use the metaphor of like, think about it like you're building a Mad Lib, right? We think about a movie, right? Um, what is the sort of sequence of events of the plot? Um, um, what's his name? Stephen King talks about in his book on writing about how one of the things he did to learn how to become a great writer is he literally rewrote by hand The Great Gatsby. Oh, wow. It allowed him to contextualize the story and the plot and the arc in a way which was much more tangible than if you just read it. So I talk a lot about consumption, but the consumption that creatives do is much more active and either Purposeful. physically or mentally, it's also very um, structured, right? You're looking and you're thinking about what are the pieces of this and um, how does that compare to my expectations? I got to read that book by Stephen King. I know it's really I, good. Yeah, because and I don't just say writing as a hypothetical thing. Like it really is 
something that I want to get a lot better at, uh, like really good at. I, I enjoy it. Um, but so if I were to become a better writer, like I could study Mark Manson, Dan Millman, how they open chapters, how they, that's uh, how I learned how to open chapters is I read lots uh, of my favorite business books and I looked at how they open questions and, and chapters. And it was an interesting lesson too, because one of the things I'd learned is not just how they did it, but there's also a variety, right? And so the idea of you don't want to, if you end every chapter, like, let me give you a couple examples when it comes to like narrative nonfiction, which is what I write, right? Is um, if you end every chapter with a question, it gets really annoying, right? <laughs> but it's like a really good method and it, it provokes a lot of interest. And so, or like a, another sort of writing trick is like, you end a sentence, you end the last sentence of a section with an, uh, a sentence that includes an M dash because it's kind of, it like has like a nice sort of oomph and you can use it to be sort of funny or witty or sort of, um, just a little bit more like charming, I'd say in your writing. But again, if you did that every single chapter, it'd be boring. And so when it comes to writing a book that is breezy or easy to read, the thing that people talk about that I think is a really good framework is you want every chapter to make you want to read the next chapter. You want every paragraph to make you want to read the next paragraph. You want every sentence to make you want to read the next sentence. Mm. And that is a great example of these really good narrative writers. That's just part of their craft, but they think about it and they study it and they learn and they talk about it. Like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell literally has now a masterclass. I haven't watched it yet. I should, because I figured it's probably pretty interesting, but like about how to write uh, narrative nonfiction. And like, these are things that they think of. They're not just sitting there and doing it. And as a podcast host, of which there are many podcast hosts <laughs> Wait, who listen to this show. Wait, there's well, a lot no, of podcasts. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, even even that that listen to this show because so many of so much of my audience is podcast hosts. So as one of those, you could listen to people like Joe Rogan, Lewis Howes. Like, what works for them? What doesn't? What do they do? And when, when maybe there's an awkward moment, they forget their question. Uh, you know, what are the key ingredients here to the to the secret formula? Or, I mean, stand-up comedians, right? One of oh, my, I, wow. I spent a bunch of time with stand-up comedians, and I've since befriended a bunch of stand-up comedians, because a lot of comedians like the book, and which I think is kind of funny, pun intended. And the comedians, like, how comedians get good at comedy is they consume huge amounts. Like, every comedian has a story about how they were obsessive about watching SNL or sneaking off to a comedy club and, like, just learning the structure of jokes and learning how to tell a joke. And, like, comedy, I think, is a great example of practical creativity because it's also very different in execution than people expect. Like, how most comedians work is it's very written, it's very structured, it's very iterative, right? So one of the things I talk about in the book is iterations and how... We tend to think of creatives that like they sit down, they write the book, they're done. But actually, the best creatives, the best writers, novelists, comedians, whatever it is, are very, 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 very iterative. And they're constantly tweaking and trying to figure out, is this the right fit for your audience? And in stand-up comedy, this is why big comedians do small shows. Because if you're working on your Netflix special or your Comedy Central special, You don't want the first or even the third time you've told a joke to be on your special, right? Mm. Because there's a lot of little things in how you tell a joke that go a long way to whether or not it's funny. And so like every little mannerism, all this stuff is like something they've thought a lot about. And so um, I think it's just a really good illustration of a field that people think of as like sort of like, oh, they're like talented and they're just funny. But actually comedy is a really serious craft, 
Yeah, I, I want to uh, well another example with the act of consumption. I feel like the way that I learned how to create content on, say, LinkedIn, how to get like exponential amounts of engagement on there. Like I sat back and just consumed for months oh, totally. on it. I, I like our mutual friend Mark Metry in I think it was August and September of 2018. I was just like. I was watching him and I was watching uh, someone, someone else named Sarah and I was watching someone named Justin uh, and I just studied like what worked and I came away with like, okay, a lot of times like a good post, you know, begins and ends, they, they pose a question. Uh, it's like one or two lines for a, an entire paragraph and then it's next line. Like it's not big blocks of text. And I like, I found all of these ingredients that made up like a really good post that got a lot of eyeballs. Uh, so the, the, the active consumption, the purposeful consumption definitely works. And I think that you can apply this to anything that you want to get good at. It's, it seems really easy. Totally. And the other thing though, is like, even with you said, the other thing that's interesting is like, it's about like this intersection of, um, taking those formats or those ideas and adding your own twist to it. Right? Like if you did exactly what like Mark did, for example, like, not only would it fall flat, but it'd look kind of cheesy, right? Ah. But if you take it and you add your own little twist to it, it doesn't have to be a big twist, but you add your own little twist to it, people are like, oh, like, I kind of I get this. I like this. This is interesting, right? And so a lot of times that's why you see a lot of successful creativity come at this intersection of the familiar and the novel where people are like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Like, um, I think about like there's been this big trend for the last 18 months around edible cookie dough um, shops that open up that they kind of look like ice cream shops, but they serve edible cookie dough, like in a cone. And this is a great example of like a familiar concept wrapped in a novel way. Like it's ice cream, but it's cookie dough, it's edible cookie dough, but it's ice cream. And it makes it so people are sort of intrigued and they're interested and they want to find out more and why, but they're yet, they also sort of get it. Right. And that's really important because things that are really unfamiliar are sort of scary and weird, right? Like this is why, you know, when you think about Apple, like I think Apple is the funniest example because we think about Apple, like if you ask someone like, who's a creative genius? They go, Steve Jobs, right? He had these radical ideas. But like when Apple first launched their first tablet device in the early 90s, the Apple Newton, spectacular failure. And it was a device that mm. had no, it was one of a kind. It was totally out there. It was radical, right? Failure. People were like, what is this? I don't need this. This is weird, right? Fast forward a long time. And the, when the iPad eventually became successful, it was after a long chain of incremental changes. So the iPad was literally an iPhone without a phone. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone. The iPod was just a better MP3 player. None of this was that radical. But the fact that they did it in this novel, amazingly sexy way, right? That's what was exciting. And so Steve Jobs, actually, if you think about his career, the thing he did, especially in the tail end of his career, he did so well, was this amazing ability to take a concept, make a little tweak from it, and build these massive markets. Beautiful. This makes a lot of sense to me. Remember, my friends, if you want to unlock your creative potential. Go get The Creative Curve by our friend Alan here. You can get it on Amazon. So, And so this is, I know you're not a fan of the 10,000 hour rule, right? Because this active consumption and this purposeful practice is far better than just 
beaten beating like a dead horse for 10,000 hours. So the, yeah, so you just uh, hit my trigger word, so I'm going to go <laughs> and leave now. No. Uh so the 10,000 hour rule I talk about in the book um is based off this research by this guy K Anders Ericsson who's a very famous academic in the field of talent development. And I interviewed him for my book and he gave me this quote which I put in the book which was that um Malcolm misread my paper. And the important thing is that um Gladwell's book is all about how if you practice something for 10,000 hours, you'll become world-class at it. There's a lot of problems with that statement. The first is that all of the research is not about practice. Practice is about doing something you've done before, doing it over and over and over again, so to become subconscious. That is the opposite of what Kay Anders Erickson was talking about. Kay Anders Erickson was talking about what's called purposeful or deliberate practice, which is literally the opposite. It's about keeping stuff in your um, high level of consciousness so that you can work on it. And so how you do that is you take a complicated thing and you break into very, very small foundational pieces. So this is why like basketball players, the way they get better is not by literally just playing games over and over again, right? It's actually by they do like left-handed dribble drills, right? They do these very specific things that they want to get better at. And that, by keeping it automatic, like that's how you get better. Otherwise, like we'd all be NASCAR drivers because we all have driven 10,000 hours. Like it just makes no sense. The other reason why it's sort of silly is that um, the research did not say that 10,000 hours was some magic number. There's no biological thing in your brain that says, oh, it's been 10,000 hours. Whoop, you're an expert. What the research said was that 10,000 hours was the average across people and across skills. So some people take more or less time and then some skills take more or less time, which makes sense because being world-class is a relative measure. So fields that have been around for a very long time take way more time, right? right. So to be a world-class um, piano player takes about 25,000 hours for the average human. 25,000 hours because people have been doing it for longer. On the other hand, I talk about in the book, the recent trend in the last decade around there's these competitions for digit memorization. So how many digits of pi can you memorize? This has become a whole thing. There's like a documentary about the subculture. And it only takes about 400 hours, at least when the study was done a few years ago, to become world-class because people have done it for less, right? It just yeah. makes sort of sense. So anyway, the 10,000-hour rule, it's, it's just Well, that's kind of like, yeah, but 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 the it, it's kind of like, you know, you write a book in the, self, the self-help category. Oh, whoa. <laughs> for those listening, I have his book and I just showed it to him. <laughs> well, look, there, there's that book right there in the self-help category, Growth Mindset University, and it's hard. To rank there. But I just wrote this book called The Podcast Playbook. And right now, I know we're recording this like three months in advance, but right now it's number one new release in three like kind of obscure categories that are like like social media. Like it's much easier to rank in that. Uh, and like, and it's number two overall in social awesome. media. So like it's much easier. Uh, it's So it's kind of like, you know, it takes 400 hours for some things, 25,000 for others just a little analogy there 100 percent. and that's i mean this thing is like all of its relative right so like if you want to be a, i mean this is also why like you know like this is one of the reasons why people get confused about creativity is because they see child prodigies and like child prodigies is just that they started young so they had more time to practice <laughs> like that's what it is like it's not that they were three like mozart's my favorite example like 
you know, we think about Mozart in the movie Amadeus, where he literally is three years old playing the piano blindfolded for the king. Like, that's like the opening scene. And that's like comic, like, it's just the whole thing's ridiculous. Like, the real story of Mozart is he was three. He had a helicopter dad. His helicopter dad started making him practice the piano when he was three, practicing three hours, seven days a week. Three hours, seven days a week. Like, like this stuff is crazy. And it's like, yeah, like when by the time he was 17 or 18, he was really, 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 really good because he's been practicing for 14 or 15 years, three hours a day. Like, of course. And so, like, it's not that he woke up at age 18 and was a master piano player. Like, it's just silly. Right. So, Alan, you're 28 years old. We're going to begin to wrap this up, by the way. You're 28. Are you, would you consider yourself successful? No. No. How come? I think um, successful to me is a state of sort of like existential satisfaction um, that I don't think I'm at. I would like to be, mm. and I'm definitely working on it, but I think it's, I think it's less about like career stuff. Um, I think it's more about just like the entire uh, journey of your life being very satisfied, whether that's family, friends, all that stuff. And I think I'm like making good progress and making a lot of like positive improvements, but I don't think I'm yet at a place where I feel like, okay, like if I died tomorrow, I say like I had a successful life. Mm. I guess that begs the question. What's next? Oh my God. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing in the, that you, that you really foresee right now. Nothing right now. I'm like very much in a sort of um, living life and working on becoming a better friend, family member, all that kind of stuff. Is there anything uh, that you're really working on improving right now? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's like trying to be a better uncle. I have some, I have three very cute nephews. And as I was building the startup, I like, I don't think I was a good enough uncle. And I find that like being a good uncle makes me feel very happy and successful and satisfied. Right. And uh, seems to also like make them happy and and feel like, you know, people care about them. And so like, that's a great example of where somewhere where I'm like actively thinking about and trying to be better. Very nice, Alan. Very nice. Again, my friends, tap into your creative potential. Get the creative curve on Amazon. Follow Alan on Twitter. You know his tag, at Alan on Twitter and Instagram. Alan.xyz is the website. And uh, Alan, I really, really appreciate you. You're very sharp. I, I love someone that like just knows their book inside and out and like knows the research. You're very... Um, I mean, intelligence is such a cliche word, but like, I think just very well read. I really admire you. Thanks, man. Yeah. That is very sweet of you. And uh, I uh, just got your book. I'm excited to read it. And uh, so also go check out Jordan's book. <laughs> Alan, uh, my final question for you is uh, if you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? Would it be on creativity um i think at this point i probably a different topic um because i've done a lot of talks on creativity i think i'd probably be on i think like one of the most important skills for young people is like how to ask for advice and then also how to take advice so like when you ask for there's a there's like specific ways you ask for advice but there's also like you shouldn't take all the advice you get uh you should think critically about it and so i think there's a lot of really good things that i wish i knew when i was younger about how to how to ask and receive advice. Alan Gannett, you are the man. Thank you very much. You're awesome. Thanks, bud. 
We've reached the end of this episode of Growth Mindset University. For more keys to success and methods to inspire your entrepreneurial spirit, head to jordanparis.com slash course and enroll in our free course to elevate your podcast to the next level. Be sure to pass the show along to someone you know who will benefit from the lessons learned in each episode and we'll catch you and them on the next episode of Growth Mindset University.